morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11? If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles under the chairs and you can find Matthew 11. Well, there's no page number today. You can use a table of contents and find Matthew towards the back of your Bible. Over the last few weeks, I uh, was thinking about what to preach for the Advent series, and it's one of the more challenging bits of planning I do because the nativity accounts only show up in Matthew and Luke, not Mark and John, so there's only two Gospels, and we've done those a handful of times already over my 10 years. And in addition to that kind of series, we've done uh, a series titled after the hymn that we just sung, Come Come Thou Long Expected Savior. We've looked back at the Old Testament and how the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus, um, his life and death and resurrection. Whatever the angle, I love this season because song and word combine to create the true magic of the season. This is a wondrous time of year because the Christmas story is the greatest and truest of all fairy tales. The king has come. For his people. Uh, it's biblical comfort food, I'd say. But this year, we're going to do something a little bit different, not just for the sake of variety, but to balance our understanding of what it means that the Messiah has come. Every year, I emphasize the meaning of the word Advent. If you look it up in um, the dictionary, the second definition says the season, including the four Sundays preceding Christmas. The third definition says the second coming of Jesus. We'll talk about that uh, meaning during this series. But the first meaning is very simple. It, it, it simply means arrival or coming. And this season of Advent is a, a season of remembrance pointing backward to the coming of the God-man into the world of humanity at Christmas. And at the same time, Advent is a season of anticipation pointing forward to the second coming of the Savior at the end of history. We live in the middle of these two Advents, and almost always we're focusing on the first Advent, Christmas, in Bethlehem. This year we're going to focus a little bit more on the second Advent. What does it mean for the people of God that Jesus has come, but he's coming again? Our series is called Come Again, Lord Jesus, and Heiwan Ryu um, put this, put her talent to this graphic for us. It's also on the handout that you, you have, Josh talked about. Uh, We we could also say, in different words, bring about your second and final advent, Lord Jesus. Let's read Matthew 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gospel account that gives us a, a glimpse into Jesus' ministry and his interaction with John the, John the Baptist. We pray that as we begin this Advent season, 
that you would show us the significance of Jesus' first coming. But even more, Lord, something that we don't focus on too much, the reality, the history-ending, defining reality that Jesus is coming again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and speak now for your servants are listening. Amen. We're going to look at three things to help us process Matthew chapter 11. First, first Advent expectations, looking back to, G, uh, to Jesus coming at Christmas. Second Advent promises, and then in between expectations, because that's the stretch of history that we live in. First Advent expectations. Chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel marks a turning point in Jesus' public ministry because the people, the crowds, um, they know what to expect of Jesus now, and they're starting to build these bigger and bigger expectations of him. Here's a little historical context that's important for us. First century Israel was under Roman occupation, part of the Roman Empire. And the, the Hebrew people had a certain measure of religious freedom, only to the extent that they didn't threaten the political status quo. Don't rock the boat. Do what you want with your religious rituals but Caesar is king. Don't call anyone else king or lord, and we'll let you go about your business. Israel's hope was that her Messiah would arrive on the scene to end her centuries-long oppression at the hand of foreign rulers. She wanted to be in her own land under her own rule with no one else meddling. And into that void, centuries-long void, comes a man who is teaching from the scriptures with authority. He's healing the blind. He's casting out demons. He is exerting control over Mother Nature. And he just raised a dead girl back to life. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the hope of Israel? By the end of chapter 11, despite the miracles that Jesus is continuing to work, he proves to be a very disappointing Messiah. Expectations are dashed. Let me, let me draw a contrast um, before we go on. It's one thing if you're an elite high school athlete and you get all kinds of scholarship offers and you choose one to a Division I powerhouse. You're going to get a, a university education for free and you need to play your sport. But when you show up, Everyone else is bigger, faster, stronger, more skilled. The, the, the game goes by in a blur, and you're no longer the star that you were in high school. It's not your fault. You gave it your all. You worked hard. You showed up early. You put in your time. You just didn't make it. No one can fault you. That's not the picture we have here of Jesus. Not quite making it as the Messiah. He had everything he needed to fulfill this calling of deliverer and savior he had divine power flawless character public approval he possessed unique wisdom among men he had the ability to unite the people against their foreign oppressors to rise up against rome he just wouldn't cooperate he just wouldn't use his talent and his resources to benefit the people he just wanted to keep teaching bible like that was going to change the world people began to wonder. And he keeps hanging out in no-name villages out in the country instead of influencing the power brokers back in Jerusalem. Worst of all, in the chapters ahead, he'll start talking about dying in Jerusalem. Jesus does not match people's expectations of what a Messiah should be and should do. 
so when John the Baptist, who is in prison, hears about, literally, verse 2, the works of the Christ, the Christ being, being the, the word for the Messiah, when he hears about the works of the Christ, he sends a, a messenger to go to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? John himself is a unique character. He was called to be a prophet while he was still in his mother Elizabeth's womb. Uh, He's faithfully served the Lord, uh, and yet he's a little bit unique in his adult years, uh, uh, especially eating locusts and and honey, living out in the desert, calling for repentance, um, dressing like a crazed religious fundamentalist. He's a prophet, though, that has faithfully proclaimed the coming of the Lord, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he reasonably expected, along with everyone else, that the Messiah would bless the good guys and bring judgment on the bad guys. And here John is in prison, wrongfully thrown in by Herod, wondering, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? With all due respect, Jesus, I pointed everyone to you as the Messiah, as the deliverer, as the hope of Israel but I'm not feeling it. It's not working out the way I thought. I'm serving you, and yet I'm about to lose my head. John's doubts weren't anything new. John's doubts, I would guess, are pretty easy for us to relate to even 2,000 years later today. Long before John's time, a guy named Asaph wrote Psalm 73, complaining to God that the, the wicked were prospering while the righteous were suffering. And he couldn't make heads or tails of this. He gets to the point of of saying, In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. What is this for? What, What good will come of this sacrifice, God? How is it even worth it to follow your ways? And those kinds of questions haven't changed much over the thousands of years. So many people of faith encountering pain and suffering, famine and disease around the world, um, war, oppression, unspeakable, horrific evil perpetrated against the weakest and the smallest among us. And sometimes we wonder, what is the benefit of all this salvation made possible through the coming of Jesus as Messiah? Some Jews tell the story of a, a Christian evangelizing a rabbi in New York City. The Christian is insisting to the rabbi that the Messiah has already come and that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the rabbi walks to the window of his apartment overlooking the rest of Manhattan. And he notices, not with much effort, the corruption, the decay, the breakdown of society, the lawlessness. And he shakes his head. He says, no. When the Messiah comes, there will be justice. When Hebrews talk about justice, they're not just talking about the legal court where innocence or guilt are established and somebody goes free or somebody goes back to prison. The Hebrew concept of justice is God setting right what is wrong, the bringing back of shalom, not just peace, but wholeness completeness, life as God designed it to be. The rabbi walks to his window and looks outside 
And he doesn't see shalom. He sees a bit of chaos. He sees a bit of corruption. He sees the breakdown of society. And he says, Messiah wouldn't let this happen. Isn't that a tempting thought to have? Isn't that a reasonable assumption even on the part of the rabbi? For some reason, though, in God's perfect wisdom, he saw to it that a psalm of Asaph, number 73, in 150 inspired songs for the use of the Christian church for worship throughout all ages, God saw fit to include Psalm 73. And he's pleased with the song of our hearts when we say or sing with Asaph, I don't get it, God. I, I look around. Sometimes I wonder if it's worth it to follow you. Sometimes I wonder what the benefit is of choosing the path of Christ over the path of self or the path of the world. In Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist will lose his head. Jesus' first advent didn't seem to do him any good. He's gone. The voice calling out in the wilderness is snuffed out. It's no more. You see, the coming of the kingdom isn't noticed or it's ignored or it's laughed at because it's an upside-down kingdom. It's backwards from what human-centered thinking is looking for. Preaching to the poor is a far cry from rubbing shoulders with the political and spiritual elite in the middle of Jerusalem. That's where you get things done. Healing and ministering to the broken, the oppressed, the outcasts, the forgotten. That's a far cry from wielding power to gain influence and status and using those to benefit the populace. And dying at the hands of evil men, John the Baptist beheaded by Herod at the whim of his daughter, or Jesus at the cross of Calvary, it's a far cry from the abundant and eternal life that the gospel promises. Ah, but that's what the second advent promises, not the first. We go there next. John asks a question, Jesus answers, verses 4 through 6. And because all the scriptures are about him, he applies the language of several pieces of the prophet Isaiah to himself. In answering John's question, are you the one, Jesus says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news, literally gospel, is preached to the poor. What do you think? It's all proof that the one who is to come has come. And he's doing what Israel longs for, the people of God long for, the pushing back of sin, the rolling back of corruption and decay and breakdown. He is the one who will bring renewal to the world and to all of his people. This is all a foretaste of the world change that God promises at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, next to last chapter. I quote this regularly. 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's what God has been up to, and that's what he will complete on the last day. He's fixing what went wrong way back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, when decay began to creep up. God is reversing the curse. Over the next few weeks, we'll sing this familiar line. 
No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That's not just a ditty that we sing during the Christmas season. That is a song making a statement about a summary of what God is up to throughout all of salvation history since Genesis 3 that will finish in Revelation 22. He's not going to let sin and sorrow grow because Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus has come. He has advented to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse has gone. As far as the curse. Every aspect of creation, every part of the being of those who follow after Christ will be renewed, renovated, restored to glory. One passage from Isaiah that Jesus uses in answering John the Baptist comes from Isaiah chapter 61. And that was the text Jesus used for his first ever sermon at the synagogue in Nazareth, recorded in Luke chapter 4. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus cuts off the Isaiah reading midstream. After to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he does not continue with what happened, what comes next in Isaiah 61, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. You might think, oh, Jesus wimped out. (laughs) He didn't want to offend anyone in the synagogue at Nazareth. He just gave them the good stuff, like a preacher today, not wanting to hit the hot-button topics, not wanting to talk about sin and repentance and the ugly things, just talking about the nice, positive things. Clearly, Jesus, fully human, as Josh pointed out, yet without sin, did not wimp out. Why didn't he read to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God? Because this is John's problem as he rots in prison. Where's the vindication of God's people? Where, where is the, the, the condemnation of the bad guys and the blessing of the good guys? Isn't Messiah, the New York City rabbi would say, supposed to bring justice to right what is wrong with the world? Here's why Jesus stops the quote. Here's why he's only talking about the positive messianic blessings of healing and wholeness. Because it's not yet time. It's not yet time. Judgment awaits another day. Specifically, the second advent when he comes back. It's delayed. Setting all things right will be what he does at the end of history, but... For now, he comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. By the way, Asaph, in Psalm 73, turns the corner. It doesn't end with him saying, in vain have I kept my heart pure. The turning point is when he enters the sanctuary of God, and perhaps he got a vision, perhaps in his mind's eye, the Holy Spirit just enabled him to to realize something profound from God's truth, which is he, he suddenly realized the wicked will have their day in court. God is a righteous God. He will set right what has gone wrong. And it gave Asaph a measure of comfort in his struggle sufficient to carry on in his um, life of discipleship. Asaph doesn't realize this, but second advent promises 
God setting right everything that's gone wrong are what bring his current struggle into focus and make it okay for him to deal with life. Jesus' priority here, and therefore the priority of all of his followers after, Jesus' priority is on preaching the good news, gospel, and ministering to the needs of the broken in order to bring these foretastes of his promise to renew all things. We're getting glimpses of what the end will fully look like. Let me put it another way. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming at Christmas and anticipate his second coming on the last day, we need to be about the work of Jesus in curse reversal. Curse reversal ministries. It's a new nonprofit. We can start today. Curse reversal ministries. It's not going to get any funding, but it's okay. Um, That leads us to thirdly, the in-between responsibilities. Why in-between? Because we're living between the two Advents, Christmas and the end of history. Advent number one, Advent number two. Following after Jesus, we'd have to say these are the days of grace. These are the days of proclaiming freedom to those who are spiritually enslaved to false gods, to false promises, to anything other than the life-giving, resurrection-bringing reality of Jesus on the cross. The days of grace involve the free offer of forgiveness because sin has been paid for on the cross. Judgment is not our job. When Jesus returns, when he advents again and for the last time as the rightful king, he will set right all things, including dealing with his and our enemies. A little glimpse of um, the last 125 years, let's say. From the, from the uh, turn of the 20th century, 19th into the 20th century, through these first couple of decades of the 21st century, I, I think church history will show an interesting seesaw battle, or, or what at least seems to be a battle between uh, two opposing thoughts. Okay? They're not really at odds. They're not really paradoxical. They always seem to be. On the one hand, the thinkers. On the other hand, the doers. On the one hand, the doctrinalists. Christianity is all about the right beliefs. On the other hand, the activists. Christianity is about acting like Jesus, loving people like Jesus, doing good. This is the classic battle from the early 20th century between the original fundamentalists and the original liberals. Those terms have taken on whole different meanings um, in our current society. But the original fundamentalists in the early 20th century Um, were battling against the watering down of biblical truth. And they said, no, no, no. Biblical Christianity needs to be founded on these truths that we get from the Scripture. Five fundamental beliefs. We can't deviate from them. The liberals were saying, well, they're nice, but, you know, virgin birth? Come on. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. Rising from the dead physically? It's a nice story. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is keep the Spirit of Jesus alive by loving people as he would today. That's Christianity. Well, the fundamentalists decided to build a wall and hide inside their truth and doctrine castle for fear of being polluted by the outside world. And the 20th century went merrily along. And these are big themes. But one of the costs of this truth without love, doctrine without action, orthodoxy without orthopraxy, big word, last one, I promise, Um, Right thinking, right practice, 
one of the effects, especially on the younger generation, was a turning away from the church. Um, you say these things, but you don't back them up. The, the classic accusation against the church of hypocrisy. Um, and we have an opportunity. And we have the God-given grace and ability and giftedness to boldly proclaim the truth about Christ as we have been as long as Grace Redeemer Church has existed for 15 years and at the same time to boldly demonstrate the love of Christ. Our recent Growing in Grace campaign laid out some foundation of thinking and practice from the scripture that give us a sense that we don't have to choose one over the other. We can boldly pursue both without compromising the other. That's been the, 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 the struggle of so many Christian churches over the last decades or even the last century. Which one are we going to emphasize? Right belief or right practice? Jesus doesn't call us to pick. He calls us to trust in his sufficient work on the cross, and then he calls us to boldly do what he began to do and to continue it until he finishes the work at the last day at his second advent. We're called to push back the curse is what we're called to do. We're called to feed the poor. We're called to teach the illiterate among us. We're called to heal the brokenhearted, to free the oppressed and the addicted, to speak and demonstrate and pray gospel hope for everyone who has hurts, habits, and hang-ups, as Celebrate Recovery puts it, every Wednesday here at GRC. And can I add this second mini very relevant commercial. Something like Sponsor a Family, which is this coming Saturday afternoon into the early evening, is not a random diaconal-led way to keep you busy during the Christmas season. We have a lot going on. Sponsor a Family is a little taste. It is a little glimpse. It is a between-advents demonstration of what Jesus is doing and will complete on the last day, pushing back ever so slightly against the effects of curse, pouring out the love of Christ and proclaiming that the one who has come that has, is giving us all this reason to celebrate, his name, his name is Jesus. Last thought. Verse 6 is the end of his answer to John the Baptist. It's really a beatitude. The beatitudes as we know them kicked off the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not. And the next word is, interestingly, in the Greek original text, scandalizo, like scandal, scandalous. Blessed is the one, it has various meanings, but let me give you a few that all work together to say the same thing. Blessed is the one who does not cease believing. Blessed is the one who does not fall into sin. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They all point in the same direction. Our tendency, our sinful tendency, is to look for a Savior that does our bidding, who makes our lives easier, who clears the path so that our self-chosen way of life has a clear run at our self-defined happiness. That's a daydream about a genie. 
That has nothing to do with the first advent of Christmas or the second advent of Jesus' return. Instead, the beatitude would say, blessed instead is the one who does not stop believing in Jesus, who perseveres. Blessed is the one who does not fall into the sin of looking elsewhere to someone else or something else for happiness or satisfaction or meaning, ultimate joy. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus' humility, his patience with sinners, his seeming weakness in coming, being born in an animal stall, placed in a manger, or his weakness of ending his life in humiliation, naked on the cross. As we begin this Christmas season, the most important question you could ask yourself, or I could ask you, is who do you believe this Jesus of Nazareth really is? Is it just a nice story? Does that change lives? Does that give you reason to do all that you're going to do to celebrate his coming? The Bible is clear. The one who has come is coming again. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the King of kings. And at his return, he will make right everything that has gone wrong. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of our faith. You are the one who has come, advented. And you are coming again. I pray, especially during these next few weeks that you would whet our appetites for your return, Lord Jesus, that with the the believers throughout the centuries, we would trust that you could come at any moment or you could come several millennia into the future. We pray, Father, using biblical words and biblical sentiments, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Complete what you have started pray in your own name, Jesus.